0: give
1: my introductory information so that by the time you're all sitting down and happy, um, you can hear from today's speaker. Um, I'm Ann Browdy, the director of the Women's Studies in Religion program, and this will be our last lecture for this semester. We will start up again next semester. Um, and we have a changed date, I want to call your attention to, for September Lankawa's, uh presentation, which will be on Wednesday, February 24th at 1pm. She will address uh, risky dialogue, women's interreligious hospitality in the aftermath of violence in Indonesia. And then finally, our last uh, lecture of the year on March 24th at noon will be from Lynn Gerber. Uh, Who will speak about a church alive, AIDS, and the Metropolitan Community Church of San Francisco? We look forward to those talks next semester. Uh, Today, it is so great to welcome Susanna Drake back to Harvard Divinity School, where she did her MTS um, uh, in 2003, and many of us. We have fond memories of those days before she left for Duke for her doctorate and then to McAllister College where she is now an associate professor of religious studies, um, uh, teaching in early Christianity and um, all the, the kinds of issues you're going to be hearing about today. Um, her first book is on the next page. Where is it? There. Um, sticky paper. That that will be my next lecture. Um, Her first book was published in 2013 by the University of Pennsylvania Press, and that was slandering the Jew, Sexuality and Difference in Early Christian Texts. Um, She's now embarking on a second book project that's in the early stages of development, um, which she is going to speak to you about today. Susanna.
2: near the martyr shrines of St. Narius, Achilleus, and Petronilla. By this time in the late ancient imagination, Petronilla was known as Virgin Martyr, a daughter of St. Peter, or maybe a young virgin whom Peter healed. We know of Veneranda's special attachment to Petronilla because of the fresco painted in the lunette of her grave. This is the image that I want to start with. So Veneranda is the woman there we go. Veneranda is the woman here on the left. Patronilla is here. And Veneranda is depicted in an, an orange position. with the hands raised. This is a very typical position we see in a lot of the Roman um, iconography and also early Christian, um, kind of signaling their, their pietas. And uh, she, Veneranda, is wearing an elegant tunic, kind of an elite status. Um, she stands close to Petronilla. Their names are, that's what we know who they are, their names are actually written You can't see this. Petronilla's name, after Petronilla's name, um, the martyr is written. So we know that that is how we are supposed to be interpreting her. On the left, we have a little bit of garden imagery, which is typical. This scene is explained that Petronilla, the martyr, is leading Veneranda into the afterlife. so not unusual that we have this garden and paradisical imagery. And on the right over here, we have, it's hard to see, the some basket of scrolls, and a, a book or codex here floating upside down. Um, also not that atypical, but probably be signifying generanda's learning. When a woman was depicted as veiled in antiquity, what sorts of things did the veil signify? What <coughs> work did the veil do? So I began to be interested in these ancient women's head coverings in the course of two seemingly unrelated experiences. First, I was reading Origen, a prolific third century theologian from Alexandria, and later he wrote in the Caesarea Maritima. And I was working on some of his interpretations of the Old Testament and veils from showing up. Everywhere. Moses' veil, from Exodus thirty-four and from Second Corinthians three, the temple veil, you know, from the synoptic the passionate. The veils of false prophetesses in Ezekiel, the veils of the lovers in the lower stone with the head headings of women in his neighborhood, and the veiled women and men depicted in statues in his city squares, and the draped women in <coughs> and on sarcophagi. And second, I was teaching at Macalester College, my home institution, commuting in St. Paul and Minneapolis, running the playground circuit, noticing many women and girls, young college women and them, who wore headscarves. And I read about headscarf controversies far away in France, and nearby among most Somalis, now living in Minneapolis. I listened as Macalester women who covered their heads, spoke of the varieties of discriminations so they could daily lives, racism, Islamophobia, that made life difficult. I grew increasingly frustrated with the discourse that equated veiling with women's oppression and unveiling with women's freedom. And I read Sabah Mahmood's Politics of Piety, in which she asks, what else might the veil perform in the world beyond its violation of women? So what did the veil perform? By covering her head or part of her face, an ancient woman could perform modesty, or shame, honor. She could display her bodily self-control, her self-foreseeing, her bodily integrity, or her sexual inviolability. Or on the other hand, she could communicate and simultaneously cover an uncontrollable emotion, such as grief or anger, or the blush of happiness. Men too veiled to cover their anger, Classical Greek literature and in a Homeric epic, in the Roman Empire, men and women veiled in act of sacrifice. I have a slide for that. This is the um, the portrait of uh, the portrait statue of Augustus in <laughs> Corinth. and he is um, he is velato here, which means with head covered, and so. We, basically just pulled his toga up over his head. That indicates that he is in the middle of a religious ritual. He's been performing sacrifice. He's portraying himself here as a priest. In both Greece and Rome, women were veiled and ritually unveiled in the wedding ceremony. And by the end of the fourth century, Roman Christian women were veiled in a ceremony called the volatio, which is uh, echoed the Roman wedding ceremony but that marked when a woman um, dedicated herself to becoming a virgin of God or a bride of Christ. The various significations of veiling, I suggest, enrich our understanding of the veils and revelations that appear in early Christian literature. I'm interested not only in the prescriptions for women's veiling, or the exegesis of biblical veils, but also in the use of the veil to describe the boundary between the divine and the human, the upper and lower realms. The use of the veil to describe Christ's flesh. And finally, the use of the veil to describe the letter of the biblical text that covers the spirit, or the truth of the text. And it's this latter idea of truth as veiled, an idea that's found in ancient philosophy as well as in the writings of early Christians, especially the allegorists. It's this latter idea that I want to turn to in the second part of my talk. And I'm excited to see so many experts in the field of early Christian literature here today because you all can help me after the talk think through other ways that these ancient Christians were thinking with veils. The second part of my talk is going to be limited to Origin of Alexandria. So, the presentation's in two parts. First, veiling and antiquity <laughs> who veiled, why, <by, laughs> when, where. And second, the veil in early Christian algorithm interpretation and work of origin. And I'll conclude by suggesting some of the ways that these two aspects of my project relate to one another. <clears throat> veils were a part of everyday experience in the ancient Mediterranean. Images of veiled women and on occasion of veiled men were found on pottery, funerary portraits, municipal and temple statues, domestic paintings, veils figured in Homer, in Socratic dialogues, on the stage, over and again, ancient and late ancient moralists encouraged women to cover their heads when they were out in public. The term veil is an English word for which there is no Greek equivalent, and also, I should note, no Arabic equivalent. So it's an umbrella term used to describe a variety of Greek head coverings or ways of draping fabric. The three primary Greek words used for head covering are kudemnon, kalyptre, and kalima. It's difficult to ascertain from the Greek literary and visual evidence how these differed from one another. When Paul talks about veiling um, in 1 Corinthians 11, he uses verbs, not nouns. He uses katakalypto, still with this root of kalipto, right? Katakalipto, to cover up. He's talking about covering the head. And when he talks about Moses's veil in 2 Corinthians 3, he uses the noun kalima, also the Septuagint word for veil, in for Moses's veil in Exodus 34. Kalipto is the verbal root of of the anakalypteria and that's the name of the wedding cer- the Greek wedding ceremony, and the kind of un- it literally means unveiling, these series of unveiling of the bride, and it's also the name given to to the wedding gifts that one brings to the bride, the Anacalypteria. And calypto also lies at the root of apocalypto and apocalypsis, right? So thinking there about the variety of types of unveiling, both of women's bodies and of hidden truths. So this connection between veiling and revelation is also present in the Latin, wello, wellum, revelatio. revelatio. It's useful to think not only about the veil as a specific piece of cloth, but also to think about veiling as a verb, as a gesture, a bodily act, a drawing over of a kind of double skin that accentuates the boundaries of the body. Tertullian calls it a shield and a refuge. Women and men could pull their hymation, or their toga, their mantle, their pala, over their heads or across their faces. I have a few images here for you to see. That this is what Augustus has done here. He's just pulled his toga up. So you could, you could, you could perform this gesture with whatever cloth you had on hand. Here's a, a small figurine, um, a Tanagra ten, figurine. This is Greek from third century B.C.E. And you can see that she's wearing a long, she has a very large piece of cloth draped around her, it could be draped around her shoulders, but she can also pull it up over her head. (coughs) This is the Baker Dancer in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, um, from Alexandria, 200 BCE, in bronze. And you can see uh, the veil is, or or her mantle here is, Over drawn over her head tightly, and also across her face, and this, and if we're going more closely, that's a little difficult to see here. But she's also wearing a face veil um, with little holes for her eyes. We see this in some of the other um, Greek evidence, uh, visual evidence of this, um, of a kind of smaller face veil that you could wear with with slots for the eyes. Um, a Roman matrona could pull her pala over her head, And that was a sign of her kind of elite status, to be wearing a stola and a pala, this rectangular piece of cloth draped around her. Um, this is Eumachia, um, so from Pompeii, uh, dates 14 to 37 CE. Uh, the inscription tells us that she's a priestess of the Pompeian Venus. And this gesture of holding the cloth, also um, signifying an elite status, good manners, education, like the the length of cloth seemed to be a status marker, how many extra folds you could get. (laughs) Um, And the way that you carried it uh, was also a status marker. We want to think here, although my um, talk doesn't center on this very much. There's a whole um, field of work to be done on, the, uh, on class difference and status difference here, because um, uh, showing how much cloth you have, how encumbered you could be, I mean, is a sign that you are not performing physical labor, for example. Um, and, and she's here also portrayed in this priestess way, so it's similar to the Augustus the statue of Augustus in Corinth. So in this uh, priestess role here, performing ritual. Not only were various head coverings part of the fashion in many ancient Mediterranean societies, they also communicated a woman's idos, <coughs> which we can translate with shame, but it's kind of a bigger category. Her honor and her, her bodily self-mastery. These virtues are connected in the Greek imaginary and they're variously inflected by gender. Sulphurcine, so for, for example, was a celebrated virtue of men and women who demonstrated self-mastery, bodily self-control. Uh, these virtues are, as Ann Carson notes, virtues of self-containment. There's uh, an anecdote about how unbeltedness and beltedness <laughs> could be various significations of your, your bodily self-control. Unlike a man, a woman expressed her honor and her sophrosyne by ensuring that she was properly concealed in public. The veil, as Lloyd Llewellyn Jones notes, acted as a type of tortoise shell for ancient Greek women. And when, uh, when a woman left her house, she could carry her house with her and operate with a modicum of freedom in male society. So in this case, the veil helped to create opportunities for women to participate in the life of the polis. And men's excellence, their virtue, is performed openly in the public sphere. It requires revelation and proclamation. And women's excellence, by contrast, is expressed in concealment and discretion. And at this point, I want to note that it's useful to untether our notion of shame from negative associations with guilt and embarrassment, and to have a more expansive definition when approaching the ancient materials. Um, Virginia Burris' book, Saving Shame, has helped me think through some of this. Um, Shame is both a public and a private affect and a mode of being in the world in antiquity, a technique of the self. Shame is, in Burris's words, the sight of a subjectivity articulated at its thin-skinned limits. It challenges the very distinction between inside and outside end quote. Nor should we think of shame and modesty as kind of passive performances of femininity or performances of a passive femininity. In a recent monograph, Kate Wilkinson has shown how, for ancient women, modesty itself is a performance of their virtue. She writes, quote, modesty is reflexive. It's an opportunity for active self-formation and self-representation in a community. Modesty is cultivated through a set of social (coughs) performances, a collection of doings that contributes to the maintenance of a modest personhood, end quote. So, wrapping one's pala about oneself, holding on to voluminous amounts of elegantly draped cloth, covering the head, or gesturing even towards your face with your hand or finger, kind of like this, drawing your veil up like this. These gestures are all part of the doing of modesty and the cultivation of virtue among ancient women. Just a couple more slides for that. Um, This is a, a funerary relief from Palmyra. Syria, um, dated to the late 1st, early 2nd century CE. And you see here this kind of gesture of, of the, um, so similar to some of the, the Roman statues, of uh, Eumachia that we were looking at earlier, her hands are up, she has a hand holding her veil in a kind of veiled gesture. And, um, and then you also see some local variation, a lot more elaborate jewelry and um, embroidery on the, on her mantle there. Um, Here's another from Palmyra, another nice veiling gesture here. And then a couple just standard types of statues. This is the Pudicitia type, so a Roman type, also some copied from classical Greek statues, but of veiled women. This is a, a large Herculaneum woman woman. Um, this is also a type that's found all over the empire. Again, Roman copies of Greek originals. This is from the mid-first century um, from Herculaneum. But this, you see, she's even, she's <clears> holding, <throat> holding on to lots of cloth here. She's also got a hand draped. That's another part of my project I'm not talking about today, the veiling of the hands. For both men and women, veiling was part of the management of emotion. Douglas Cairns explains that the emotions like eidos, shame, anger, and grief, involve self-consciousness and self-protection, and all focus on one's vulnerability as an individual for whom interaction in the public arena has suddenly become problematic, End quote. Um, so we see this in the Odyssey, for example, um, some men veil in grief. So Telemachus veils um, in grief and longing for his father. Odysseus hides his tears with his mantle when he listens to Demodocus sing. Uh, it's never said that Achilles veils, but in the fifth century on pottery we have these beautiful images of Achilles um, in grief, um, fully covered in his Timation here. So. Um, Athenian red figure, Crater, now in the Louvre. Here's another one.
1: <coughs>
2: so uh, just to continue with Karen's, just a little bit here on the Greek evidence. Men conceal themselves, he writes, quote, when they feel that their honor has been impaired, when ashamed, humiliated, insulted, when indulging in emotions which they consider inappropriate to display in public, often this behavior can be seen to involve a degree of feminization, end quote. And others have shown how how, um, this is also just a traditional gesture in, in classical Greece for men to veil to cover an uncontrollable emotion. So, if veiling performs female modesty, shame, Mm self-containment, virtue, and if for men it's associated either with a kind of status impairment because of their emotion, or the performance of ritual, which I think we might usefully think of in terms of status impairment and enhancement, both of those things, Um, then what does the opposite signify? What does unveiling perform, especially in regard to women? And what do we make then of all the unveiled women? Um, in the ancient images. Often um, in the literature, unveiling has a sexual connotation, so the taking of a woman's chastity, the unstoppering of a jar, um, the foreshadowing of a woman being taken as a slave and thus her impending sexual viability. Um, In his exhortation for virgins in his community to veil, Tertullian draws this connection between sexual violation and unveiling. He writes, quote, Every confiscation of the veil of a virtuous virgin is the suffering of defilement. You have laid bare a girl by her head, and now she does not consider herself to be a complete virgin. She is made something else." End quote. So much of the textual evidence is
3: prescriptive
2: and speaks to this kind of ideal situation in which veiling maps easily onto the bodies of modest, respectable women. The visual evidence, however, tells a different story. For example, the majority of female portrait busts in the Roman period portray unveiled women. Elite women, empresses, goddesses, are the majority of the time portrayed as unveiled. Um, just a couple examples here to even out the playing field. Um, here's the Empress Faustina the Younger, 161 CE, found near Tivoli, also in the loop. And the Arapakis, uh, the Augustan Altar of Peace from the um, late first century BCE famously has veiled and unveiled men and veiled and unveiled women in the imperial uh, procession here. So this is, you can see uh, a man with a veil. This frieze has veiled women, unveiled women, I don't think we would want to read that somehow these women, were, um, without their veils, were trying to perform immodesty <laughs> in any way. So, so I, I, um, I really hesitate before reading too much into the depiction of, of unveiled women. Yeah. So even though we can read the gesture of veiling as a performance of bodily self-control, the presence of an unveiled female does not necessarily signify immodesty or lack of self-control nor can we assume that unveiled women represent slaves or prostitutes. Um, Kelly Olson concludes from the Roman visual evidence that veiling the head every time one went out of doors was strictly prescriptive behavior and up to the decision of the woman. Uh, The the scholars of the Greek evidence say a little bit different, they they, um, tend to think that based on our Greek evidence, it was more routine for Greek women to veil especially in public and in the presence of unrelated men. And then, I, if we follow Olson and Lloyd Llewellyn Jones, we can maybe trace a bit of a shift when we get to the Roman period. But we have, in other words, a diversity of practice attested in antiquity, and neither images nor texts give us access to what was really happening, which was probably even more diverse and more multivocal. What we can trace are some of the veil's multiple significations. Associations with the construction of gender, with ritual and sacrifice, the communication of social status, the performance of virtue, modesty, sexual inviolability, piety, and the management of emotion. And when we move to the Christian visual evidence, and here I'm limiting it to the Roman funerary art, um, which is a limitation. Um, this art also attests to a diversity of practice among women. In Roman catacomb paintings and sarcophagi, most women depicted are veiled. Biblical women, like the Virgin Mary, often, most often depicted uh, with her head covered. Here she is with a kind of toddler Jesus on her lap. This is a fourth century sarcophagus from Rome. And the woman with a hemorrhage of blood, you could see her. She's most of the time, as far as I could tell from Roman evidence, um, depicted as veiled. They fit her into, uh, the artists like to fit her into so many of these scenes because she's so small you can put her on the ground wherever she fits, um, touching Jesus' cloak. Um, Eve is famously unveiled. Let's see if we can have a Eve. Maybe a status impairment here for Eve. Um, here we have a veiled woman. This would be the deceased, most likely. Um, her name here, Crispina. And this is a Christian sarcophagus, also from fourth century, unknown providence. And she, is, she has this kind of uh, book or scroll that she's ho- holding, a, a codex, with a Christogram there. So this is how we know it's Christian, or one of the ways we know it's Christian. It also has biblical scenes. In catacomb frescoes, biblical women also and female benefactresses were often veiled. Here we have Susanna and the elders. She's often depicted as veiled. Orant position, we have many of these veiled Orants for signifying the deceased. Here's signifying Susanna in the biblical story, most likely, but she could also just signify the deceased. And it could, a male, a deceased male, could be signified by a veiled female Orant. Um, Here the, oh, this is, sorry, the Catacomb of Priscilla, that's where we've moved to. So this is from the Catacomb of Priscilla from the Greek chapel, and here's the same catacomb um, from the cubiculum of the Donna Velata, so the veiled woman. And so here you see um, the woman with a veil over her head. Here, interesting to think about what this is. This is, so the man here is holding her veil. She's unveiled here, and, and he's holding a veil her so this is some sort of veiling is this a wedding is this baptismal garments um, And then Nicola Desey is written on this picture and the uh, over here you have the same woman unveiled um, nursing a, an infant. and uh, but ve- female veiling practices are not consistent even in the early Christian art so I again caution against over interpreting unveiled women in these portraits. Um, here you have a, a sarcophagus slab from the third century or beginning of the fourth century, and uh, Severa is the woman honored here. And elegant hairstyle, no veil, um, kind of, but depicted in kind of toga-like philosopher learnedness. And it's interesting that Mary—I mean, this is one of the few images of Mary unveiled. I, I believe unveiled. I believe in the same hairstyle as Severa has here. And then again to loop back to Veneranda and Petronilla. So still, I'm not quite sure how, if I can fully answer the um, the reasons for the uh, one woman veiled here and the deceased, both of them deceased. But the martyr Petronilla um, had deceased before Veneranda. Why is she unveiled? Many. I have a few ideas, but I want to I shift gears to origin here. So I want, to, um, I want to shift gears to think about the role of the veil in allegorical exegesis. So in her book on Paul and the birth of Christian hermeneutics, Margaret Mitchell notes that one could write the entire history of early Christian biblical interpretation via the images of the mirror and the veil, right? both from Paul, 2 Corinthians 3. So Origen began his teaching and writing career in Alexandria, one of the capitals of intellectual life in the empire. but he later moved north and composed most of his biblical commentaries and homilies during the years that he taught and preached in the Roman city of Caesarea Maritima. Here's an image of that city of the um, archaeological remains there at that city. Caesarea was, at this time, a center of cosmopolitan and intellectual life in Palestine. The third century witnessed the growth of important rabbinic and Christian academies in the city and the founding of a great theological library. Um, It is in this context of cultural overlap, of daily contact, and occasional competition among Greeks, Romans, Christians, Jews, and all sorts of combinations thereof that Origen attempted to delimit a Christian orthodoxy and a method of allegorical interpretation. A passage from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians was instrumental to Origen's biblical interpretation and to most interpretation that followed Origen. So in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul writes, I'm going to go a little quickly for the sake of time here. Hopefully, you know this passage. Since we have such a hope, we act with great boldness, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. To this very day, when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, that same veil is still there, since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed." And he goes on, and we with unveiled face, et cetera, et cetera. 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 16. So Origen used this Pauline imagery of veiled and unveiled readers to draw borderlines between Jews, Christians, and heretics. And he meant for those borderlines to (coughs) clarify the differences among the diverse religious groups of his city. He takes Paul's image of the veil and runs with it. As part of his solution to the problem of Christianizing the Jews' scriptures, Origen describes the Hebrew Bible as originally and inextricably linked to Christ, the logos, He depicts the language of the Bible as a veil covering the logos and argues that the Old Covenant is at its core, those are his words, Old Covenant, is at its core a story about Christ. One needs only remove the outer fleshly Jewish layer to reveal the true Christian spirit beneath. But the mysteries concealed within the law and the prophets were not revealed until Christ came in the flesh. This is how Origen frames it in On First Principles. Quote. It was after the arrival of Jesus that the inspiration of the prophetic words and the spiritual nature of Moses' law came to light. The light was contained within the law of Moses, but was hidden away under a veil. Kalima is what he's using. It shone forth at the arrival of Jesus when the veil was taken away. And there came at once to men's knowledge those good things of which the letter of the law held only a shadow." End quote. So the incarnation of Christ facilitated for the first time the unveiling of the truth of scripture. In his first homily on Leviticus, Origen draws an analogy between the creation of the Hebrew Bible and the incarnation of Christ. Again, the veil metaphor proves useful. He writes, quote, as in the last days, the word of God, which was clothed with the flesh of Mary, proceeded into this world. So also when, through the prophets and the lawgiver, the word of God was brought to humans, it was not brought without appropriate garments. For just as there in the incarnation it was covered with the veil of flesh, so here with the veil of the letter, so that the letter is seen as flesh, but the spiritual sense hiding underneath, or hiding within, is perceived as divinity," end quote. So the logos appears among veils. As the veil of the flesh covered the human body of Christ, or covered Christ, so too the veil of the letter clothes the word of God in scripture. The homology between flesh and letter is central to his hermeneutic theory and to his exposition of Jewish-Christian difference, in which Jews are associated consistently in Origen's work with flesh, letter, veiling, and Christians with spirit and unveiling. So according to Origen, the work of the biblical exegete then is to reveal, to begin with the letter, end with the spirit, right? this kind of unveiling of the logos. The spiritual reader is an unveiler, and the unveiling is made possible by turning to Christ, a turn which is not only intellectual, but also um, cultivated by an aesthetic bodily practice. For origin, spiritual reading is the vocation of one who's undergone training to renounce anger, lust, dishonor, weakness. Unveiling requires a certain manly and rational self-control. Interpreting according to the spirit is not for women, and by women, origin means all those, male and female alike, who are, his words, weak, slack, and sluggish. Spiritual interpretation is rather for those Christians who are ready to, quote, assume a manly constancy and hasten swiftly to the perfection of strong men, end quote. In a homily on on Ezekiel, (coughs) he interprets the uh, female prophetesses who have sewn pillows and veils in Ezekiel 13. And Ezekiel, this passage, Ezekiel 13, 18 reads, thus says the Lord, Um, Woe to the women who sew bands on all wrists and make veils for the heads of persons of every height. I will tear off your veils and save my people from your hands. That's the Ezekiel verse. So Origen uses these verses as an opportunity to emphasize the association of veils with the sphere of the feminine. He writes, whoever does deeds of confusion and sin, it is as if he has womanly veils upon his head, Effeminacy characterizes men who indulge not only in luxury and carnal pleasure, but also in extravagant speech. Like the false prophetesses of Ezekiel's time, these teachers, whom he later identifies as Basilides and Valentinus, seek to charm and please their listeners instead of converting them from vice. Origen slanders the heretics by giving them womanly veils. Because veils are womanly, the practice of unveiling marks a progression towards manhood. Origen writes, quote, the man who has confidence and is truly a man wears no veil upon his head. Instead, he prays to God with his head uncovered. He prophesies with head uncovered. In a hidden way, he manifests his spiritual reality by the sign of his bodily attire. Just as he has no veil over his head of flesh, so he has no veil over the master faculty of his heart." End quote. So to read with unveiled face is to read like a man. It is no surprise that manliness here corresponds with Origen's conception of Christian orthodoxy and its concomitant practice of allegorical interpretation, while Jews, Valentinians, and other insufficient Christians are consigned to the position of the veiled female. In a corresponding move, Origen envisions the biblical text as a woman, one whom the male spiritual exegete domesticate and can take as a bride. And he's using here um, the female war captive passage from Deuteronomy 21. He uses that passage um, to illustrate the proper relationship between text and reader. So just briefly, the Deuteronomic passage reads, if you go out to war against your enemies and see a woman with a beautiful figure and desire her, take her, shave off all her hair, pare her nails, take off her captive's clothing, keep her in your house for a month, this is some paraphrase, let her mourn for her parents and then you may marry her. So Origen claims that this very thing has happened to him. He's gone out to war among his enemies and he's encountered a beautiful woman there. And uh, by this he means he's encountered beautiful texts among the enemies of the church. But before he can take this beautiful text home and make her his wife, he has to shave her and manicure her nails. So he writes, for whatever we find, this is a quote from Origen, whatever we find well and reasonably among our enemies, or we read anything said among them wisely and intelligently, it's necessary to cleanse it from the knowledge which is among them, remove and cut off all the dead and worthless parts namely all the hairs of the head and the nails of the woman taken from the spoils of the enemy, and so at last make her your wife. Here, the Christianization of a biblical text, or of a text, is imagined as the purification and domestication of a female captive, as the forced removal of all features that might um, make the text um, unfaithful to its Christological meaning. Lisa Lampert's observed of this um, origin passage that he analogizes the process of making the captive a suitable bride with the ways that a Christian exegete should approach a text by stripping the bride and stripping the text. There's no chance that either will pose a threat to purity. So um, my reading, similar to Lisa Lampert's, it's this, um, uh, this interpretive move is, is similar to a Forced on a right? That unveiling word for the wedding ceremony. So, in his interpretation of a captive woman, the imagery of uncovering and undressing suits Origen's purposes in describing the charged and violent encounter between reader and text. Spiritualizing interpretation proves, in this instance, to, the, to be the domain of the true man even though the spiritual interpretation itself involves the beautifying, cleansing, and shaving of a text-coded female. Origen's theory of exegesis thus hinges on the repeated association of Christianity with manliness and unveiled reading on the one hand, Judaism and other heresies with femininity and veiled reading on the other. So to conclude. It's difficult for me to imagine the relationship between the intellectual interpretive ivory towered world of origin the exegete, origin the noose, right? The mind and the material world, the world of cone silk veils and woolen mantles embroidered cloth and marble statues and frescoes and human bodies. But surely these worlds touched Origen, after all, must have spent much of his time with the inked word on the page, a page that would often have been made of animal skins. right? And he did so as an embodied soul, one most likely draped in some lengths of cloth, one would only hope. Mm -hmm. So reading Origen's exegesis in tandem with ancient material culture has helped me to think differently about the social and material effects of an allegorical interpretive method that describes the work of an interpreter as manly, um, as a manly unveiling of a feminized text. And the metaphor of unveiling connects Origen to his beloved Paul, his exemplar of reading with an unveiled face, and it also connects him to a long line of philosophers who considered truth as something that was hidden or is veiled, going back to Heraclitus, who a pre-Socratic famously wrote, um, nature loves to hide. But the metaphor of unveiling also connected origin to the bodies of men and women in his midst. The imagery of veiling and unveiling remains enmeshed in ideologies of gender and sexuality, ideologies that were elaborated in statues, paintings, and on bodies, especially those of women. Veiling and unveiling were not gender neutral, and the practice of biblical interpretation was not gender neutral. This non-neutrality leads me to questions of power, with which I will end. Who gets to speak for the biblical text? Who gets to unveil spiritual truth? Who is consigned to reading with a veiled face? Who benefits and who suffers from the trope that truth lies hidden behind a veil? Thank you.
1: has amazingly ended before one o'clock. Um, I know some people may have to leave, but we do have another half hour for questions for those of you who can uh, stay for the discussion. And I see that I neglected one of my chairly obligations, which is the circulation of the sacred mailing list. Um, <laughs> if anybody would like, uh, is not on the WSRP mailing list and would like to be, please um, uh, give us your email. So we can let you know future lectures. Um, I'm sure there is going to be discussion of this really um, provocative and revealing lecture. So can we yes. open? Yeah, for I'm happy. T-
2: happy to take questions. Jacob is going to come around with a uh, microphone, or maybe Jacob doesn't want to do it, and somebody else could volunteer. You can do it. Okay. Oh, thanks, Johan.
1: you can. Ask. Yeah, you can, can help me to
3: pass this. Oh, you're just you. <laughs> sorry, I thought you were going to pass this. Oh, question. no, no, sorry. Okay. Um, <laughs> any questions for us? Do you know? Thank you.
4: Thank you, sir. Oh, that's loud. Sorry. Thank you, Susanna. Um, I was wondering if you could comment on um, the. Okay. Is this working still? Okay. Um, If you could comment on uh, Origen's um, uh, commentary on the Song of Songs, where the Christian exegetes in a very different perspective with respect to veils. So, there, for those of you who don't know the Song of Songs, right, you have this. Uh, just, you have this exchange between the bride and the bridegroom, and, uh, and of course, like uh, voices as well. And, and origin of series of and commentaries on the, the question is in that the Christian exegete is the position of the bride who is veiled. So first of all, the, this this exegete, which in, in the passages you were discussing, is gendered um, male here is gendered female and is in a position of being unveiled herself by by God so I'm just wondering if that how that plays into um, your analysis of gender and, and veiling and scriptural exegesis
2: mm-hmm. N- Thanks um, in the comment here in origin's work on the song, I think this is a great place and it complicates my discussion. I had had more time I would have loved to talk about this as well but I think that um, that what we have in the commentary on the song in many ways is origins of the is the impossibility of origins escape from the veils he revels in them in the Song of Songs and I think there we see even though he has this kind of there's this idea that that it's a dangerous text that you must be pretty spiritually advanced very spiritually advanced um, to even read it. You want to keep it from mm-hmm. insufficient Christians, <laughs> um, insufficiently trained Christians. Um, so even though you have these moves to renounce bodies, renounce letter, the letter of the flesh, and renounce veils, in the song of in his commentary on the song and his homilies, um, you you also have. The it, it's he shows the impossibility of those tasks of those renunciations. I think all his renunciations come back to haunt him in a way, in his work on the song, in which he, he delights in the, the words of the song, and and to me, I think there's a way to read that as um, as his that uh, that uh, the. the, the bought what he calls the body of scripture or the flesh of scripture is always for him it has to be the starting place and it's never fully renounced mm-hmm. and and if it is a veil it's a veil that is never going to to leave and and there i think it's from there then i think you can go and read gregory of nissa on the song and all that he does with the veil there we're kind of uh, you know, the vi- the provocation of unveiling is kind of continuous and never-ending, so. Does that
4: yeah. help? Okay, nice. thanks.
0: Uh, I have just a lot of small questions about things that I know nothing about, so. Uh, one is, you mentioned that um, the, uh, one of the Greek words for veil came from Persian. Is that right? Did you did, um, did I hear you correctly? I don't know. I I don't think so. I didn't. Oh, you didn't. Yeah, okay. no, it didn't say that. And I, okay. I'm not sure. If so, that's. so, do we have any idea? Because as you as you were talking, I was thinking of the, that region, as far as I as I recall it. And um, I don't think Egyptians were veiled at least pre-Christian times or pre-Greek times, maybe. I mean, I can't think of uh, ancient Egyptians as, as a veil being part of dress, either for men or women. Mm-hmm. So um, did you come, have you got any sense of where it came from? Is it Greece or Iran, or where did it come from? <laughs> That's <one. laughs> And I do not know,
2: so I, I have not gone that far back. That's a, it's a great question. I mean, our first textual evidence, as you know, because you've written about us, is the Assyrian law code. Yeah. So we have evidence um, in Assyria, was that 13th century B.C.E. evidence, 12th century? I think That's far back. it's very, I, I think it's pretty far back. Um, and we have a, a law code that has, um, has evidence, for, uh, or kind of veiling that gets mapped onto female bodies in a pretty one-to-one correspondence where slaves and prostitutes would be unveiled and respectable women would be veiled, and it's very prescriptive. And from there, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm interested in the veil in the Hebrew scriptures. We have some veils, but one of my students is writing on this actually for my class and, and noticing that the Hebrew words are all um, different, so we don't even know if, if veil is the right if this is the kind of garment we're talking about, and yeah, so bef- I, I I have not studied enough to answer the question fully for um, for before the Hellenistic time.
0: Well, thank you, thank you. Anyway, that's clarifying. Um, uh, well, also, and again, little detail. So, origins time. You mentioned Jews and Christians. Does that, by then was everybody either Jew or Christian, or no. who were, the were they pagans? And was they veiled or?
2: Right. So, yeah, and that's that's another thing that I'm interested in with the the textual and visual evidence. So, so he's writing in the 3rd century in Caesarea, Caesarea Maritima where the Jewish community and the Christian community, and I want to think of those communities as overlapping, would have been minority communities within a pagan Roman city that Herod the Great built in honor of of Caesar Augustus. So, um so I think that I, I don't want, I, I wouldn't want to say that veiling was in any way distinguishing either of those communities from others in their midst. I, I, I believe where, where I am right now in that part of my project, which is very much in the formative stages, is in thinking about the fact that we have a diversity of practice. And we don't know what was really happening. We have these images of mostly elite women, some of whom are veiled, some of whom are not. And and so I would hesitate before um, assigning the veil a kind of uh, function of identity formation in regard to the differentiation of religious communities. yeah, which might be in tension with some of the stuff I was saying about origin so yeah. thanks for the questions though
1: uh, Giovanni uh,
5: just do thank, thank you very much it's just too curious. Uh, one point is because I was tired and I when you brought up the commentary, the passage where Origin comments the passage in Deuteronomy, yeah. the, the texts in question there, the feminized texts, are biblical text or other texts that you know, heretics are using? Because sometimes you you know, Origin has problem using Thomas, using other apocryphal gospels. So and I didn't. I don't remember what you said. No, about that. you were
2: you were very awake because you caught me tripping up on my sentence right
0: there.
2: <laughs> um, yeah. So no, it's it's the biblical text, but could it be the others too? No,
5: yeah, because if, if if you said then he refers it's, to Valentinians and and
2: yes, so. right, right. He so he's that's so that's the passage on Ezekiel where he's like he says oh God wants to tear off these womanly veils and I want to do the same thing to these crazy heretics um, who are wearing, you know, who have womanly veils. And, and so, but I don't think, I don't know of a place that's, that's, that very well could be um, where he's talking about the kind of unveiling of a truth um, that's not in
5: scripture. But no, 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 I just, um, I, I, I don't know about the passages. I, I know that sometimes he has the problem of dealing with apocryphal, the, yeah. what what then will become apocryphal text and yes. whether to use them or not.
2: Yeah, right.
5: right. And I had another little thing. You mentioned the um, uh, the issue of men veiling themselves for sacrificial purposes. Yeah. And you said, Tantalizingly, you just said this might be a status issue. So, do you want to say something more about it? Sure,
2: this? sure. Um, so, so I think we have a. It's multivalent, right? You have it could be read as status impairment, as a kind of deference before the divine. Um, and so, you're going to put, as Paul would say it, an authority on your head. Um, and I think it could also be read simultaneously as a status enhancement. I am the chief magistrate. I get to perform this, this duty on behalf of my city, my empire. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think there's a way to read it both ways. I don't think I would want to limit it to one or the other. Thank you. Okay. Oh, yes?
0: Thank you for that very interesting talk um, I'm part of the public here, and I love coming to these uh, talks and seminars so as you as you were showing some of those slides, I was thinking about India mm-hmm. uh, and I was thinking about the Indian women and how they use their sari uh, to cover and I was wondering if you know the use of the the veil or the scarf is also has a practical point of view, like you know shielding from the sun and uh and also, kind of uh, giving some kind of, like you said, a shell mm-hmm. to the person. So I w- I'm wondering if it's more of a universal symbol rather than just, you know, uh, for the part of the world we are just talking about. Do you have any mm-hmm. idea about that? Thanks. That, no,
2: thank you for the question. I think, I think there's it's definitely for many of these, and it's written about in the. Um, in some of the evidence that we have that it's it's practical it can shield you from the weather um, from the Sun or rain and and so uh, I hesitate before kind of a, a universalizing and I there there are some who write on ancient veiling and who use examples from India or the Middle East to think about veil types motivations for veiling and all of all of those things. That even Kate Wilkinson's book some, does some, some of that work thinking with contemporary ethnography. And, and in my project I'm, I'm a little shy of doing that um, but I'm interested in reading some of the theoretical material done by um, ethnographers like <laughs> Sabah Mahmood's book Politics of Piety, reading some of the theory that comes out of engagement with women who, who veil Leila Ahmed's work on this as well. Thinking beyond this um, Western liberal trope of veil always means women's oppression and unveiling always means women's freedom. Uh, and so so I think thinking with, with theorists who engage in contemporary ethnography um, is, is very helpful. It's one of the, the pleasures of doing this project. Thanks for your question.
6: Karen. Uh, thanks a lot. That was really great. I have a million questions. But I thought I would ask the one that you kind of opened the door for us, which is you said in the, um, in the woman martyr who's veiled and the woman who's not, you had some ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Could you share them?
2: So, so when I so I actually got to see this catacomb painting in October, and it's right. It was my husband and I were going down into the um, catacomb of Domitilla at the end of the day, and so we had a tour guide for just the two of us, and it was a woman, and she was so excited when I told her what my project was, and she said, "Well, let me take you first to." Dalmatilla and Veneranda. So we went down there, and as soon as I saw them, the first thing that I thought was, oh, we have a Roman matrona and her servant. And then I read, then I looked a little, (laughs) looked again and there were words, (laughs) and saw that Petronilla was the martyr. So then I asked Sharon Solvarini the the next day, you know, could the words have been added later? Um, and she didn't think so, and <laughs> so that I thought, okay, we don't. So, so Veneranda, like many of the other women in the frescoes and honored on the sarcophagi, it totally makes sense for her to be to portray herself as veiled as many of the women in the catacomb paintings are, and Petronilla has a different status is she's a martyr she's a virgin I think there's there are some ways that you could connect some dots with unveiling and unveiled virgins we know of some in North Africa um, and I think but I'm Again, I'm a little shy to do that because I, I um, worry about over-interpreting the unveiling here since it was definitely a possibility to portray oneself as unveiled. Goddesses were portrayed as unveiled most of the time in the Roman art. And so is it a divine status of Petronilla somehow there? Some possibilities. Do you have any hunches
6: well I think you're I, I think you're going in the direction I would go from what I might take away from your your talk is that um, one would want to think about um, the the polyphonic character of, of, of clothing and you know, speaking and with regard to situations with yeah. regard to parts of the Mediterranean where one is mm-hmm. um, but that it's also possible it's always possible to uh, to sort of um, enact or to um, uh, to perform one aspect or pull on one aspect mm-hmm. that we' be pulling, but not drawing them all at the same time, mm-hmm. which is I think pulling back from a you know the simplistic view that you're talking about. This always means this, this always right. indicates some kind of status to ask what's being ena- what's being you know enacted, what's being pressed mm-hmm. upon here. and so with Tertullian uh, with origin. Um, this hiding you know uh, issue seeing and hiding is 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 seems to be really prominent mm-hmm. until you get maybe to the song of songs mm-hmm. and then maybe he's doing he's pulling on some other possibility yeah. for for pulling out so here we have these two women you know and so they might not even be uh, contrasted they they may be signaling different things you know um, the unveiled truth of the martyr, you know, mm, the chaste okay. woman who mm-hmm. is the, the, you know, the Christian woman. so they might be signaling a, a fullness rather than an over against or contrast.
2: Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's nice, that's nice that that, um, that the head coverings are not a difference that make a difference in that in that lunette. <laughs>
6: Yeah, so they're not playing on status differentiation yeah. as, the, as the issue yeah. that that's signaling, for yeah. example. Instead, Maybe we, not, should, I mean.
2: we should think of them as a, as a piece. I mean, they're, yeah. they're actually yeah. touching yeah. one another yeah. in, yeah. in mm-hmm. the, so, yeah. yeah. I made that I'd, up. Thank you,
0: I'll take it. Thank you. I just want to say, Suzanne, this is a totally fascinating, so I can't wait to read your book. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Leila. <laughs> Thank
1: you so much. Uh, I'm going to ask a question that may uh, show the depth of my ignorance of this topic. But I'm really wondering about the equation between veiling and head covering. Um, Mm -hmm. I was very struck in the images you showed that the same same drapery a few inches away constitutes veiling. Mm -hmm. But when it's covering the shoulders, which could, I think, be an indication of modesty, shame, Mm -hmm. all all the same things that covering the head could be. So why is the covering the head, the demarcation between veiled and unveiled? Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you,
2: I think that I, after seeing, some of the evidence, I thought we I need to have a more expansive understanding of veiling as gesture. Mm-hmm. And so reading for it as a verb and getting away from the head piece. Although for Tertullian and Paul, the head is a big part of it. Um, and and also for the, the sacrificial imagery. But but if we expand our understanding of veiling to think about L, covering and hiding, Mm -hmm. and how that is done on the body, and also the hands, which is, yeah, so this is a, the veiling of the hands is another, I I didn't think I was gonna be looking for this, but then going to Rome and Ravenna and Naples made me realize that I need to look at this. Um, There's, so this is late, but in San Vitale, sixth century in Ravenna, when Moses is receiving the law, the depiction of Moses receiving the law and his hands are veiled there. So it's not Moses' face that's veiled, it's his hands. And in, in this, um, in, it's in the fourth century sarcophagi as well. On, uh, and I think in Catacomb, I'll have to check this, in frescoes in Rome, that when Jesus hands the law to Peter, and this is a kind of moment that they're, um, the artists are thinking with, then often the, hand, the law is being received with veiled hands. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's, it, I think it's going to help to think, think of it more gesturally and think of what other body parts are depicted as veiled and what does that mean. And it's interesting to me that we're still in the sphere of the word of God, the law, and veiling. So, yeah, a partial answer.
7: Thank you. Is there a question yeah. Thank you so much. Um, you sort of got to this in your answer to Professor Brownie's question, but what struck me um, in one of the slides was the woman who was wearing the veil and also lots of jewelry, and I'm curious about sort of when and where and how can we think about the veil in isolation from other sort of um, aspects of dress? And if there isn't a way, in w- a way in which sort of veiling is a part of you know, the sort of fashion or w- and when we sort of read a kind of, a, that we read sort of prescriptions of virtue and into the sort of veiling practice.
2: Yeah, right. Um. So, so I, I want, I don't always want to be thinking of it in terms of female adornment because it has these other connotations that I'm interested in, and then in the, the exegetical piece that I'm interested in, we get veil and veil unveiling that seems to, yeah. in it, you know, in, in these, you know, in, in instances where jewelry is not playing a part. Yes. Now, when we get to the prescriptive evidence, like what should women wear, what shouldn't they wear, and you know this stuff better than I do, <laughs> um, that, uh, that it's, it's definitely a part of things there, that it's like, kind of like take off your jewelry, put on your veil. Hiding, so all these, you know, thinking about hiding and concealment there and being conspicuous and all of, or inconspicuous, all of those things. Now, the second part of your question, you might have to ask it again, because I just lost it.
7: This- Oh no, I may have have lost it, too. (laughs) Um, I guess thinking about um, when we read a sort of ethical, virtuous kind of- Yeah,
2: (laughs) yeah. Right, no, so putting together this talk, and doing like, okay, here's the Puduchittia type, the, you know, of, of women, and, and I thought, where did they get these names for these types, you know? And how do they know? So how do they know it signifies modesty? Well, we get inscriptions that say this is one of the virtues being celebrated. So we have some correspondence there. But I ca- I'm starting to wonder if that's overthought as well, or overemphasized in the evidence. So um, is is this always a performance of modesty? Yeah. Um, And there's a book, a recent book, that's also doing some of that questioning that I'll tell you about later. Perfect.
0: Thank you.
3: (laughs) Thank you. Um, To get away from overthinking, Mm -hmm. put on a veil. See if you, has anyone lately put a veil over their eyes and walked around for a while and felt the effect of what that would be? I did recently because um, in, I study shamanic practice, mm-hmm. and our teacher, for certain ceremonies, puts on, on an eye well an eye shield. And all of a sudden, at the end of about two years of studying together, quite a few people started making their own. And um, the last time I was with them, I said, can I try yours? I just want to see what it feels like. And I understood, because, I'm sorry about my voice, folks. Um, once this is over, you you focus, intern- I focused internally in seeing the world rather than um, prevail. <laughs> and I, I think that that's one way to understand, is to actually walk around with, with the veil for a while. Mm-hmm and see what it does to your mind or what it reveals to you. Mm-hmm.
2: Thank you, thanks for that. I, I really appreciate too the idea of inner-outer, interiority, exteriority, that you're highlighting in in your experience. Mm-hmm. So,
7: yeah. Thanks for that. Um, just um, follow uh, the question uh, about the fashion, uh, view as fashion. Um I thought it's very interesting just to look at uh this image. Um I wonder it seems now uh, in your answer to <laughs> sorry to yeah, uh, her question. Um it seems set up the um opposite uh, between adornment and mm-hmm. uh, our fashion and perform virtuosities. Mm-hmm. So um I'm wondering uh whether that's uh whether you can actually see these two <laughs> not as uh, contradict to each other, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Uh, they actually work together because um, this image somehow it's a really good example. <laughs> somehow this very kind of iconic image and then you have this very proper arrangement of will and all the jewelries. Uh, they really intertwined uh, together and then sending some message.
2: Yeah, I I think that's right. I, and here again, the, these are from Palmyra, so we might have a regional differentiation since we're in the east. And um, uh, so the the material, the scholarship that I've read on this is talking about that we have a little bit of an imitation of some of the more western forms of uh, head covering and a veil gesture. So we get the this is very common for you to have a for the women to have a... A hand up here, often pointing to their face or holding their veil. Here, in the Roman funerary portraits of of freed women, for example, we see this a lot. And yet, we have this variation with um, with a more elaborate style, which is fashion, right? I mean, and and that we shouldn't think we shouldn't think, as you said, of the virtue or modesty being in opposition all the time to female adornment, mm-hmm. and and that's very much the case with this image. And I think I would add to that all images, which even though the women are veiled, their their bodily form is very much accentuated. Yeah. Yeah. And there's there's complaints about this with, I guess, like, maybe it's this cone silk, this silk from the island of Kos that um, is uh, can be very light and invisible, and so there 's some complaints about women who are veiling, but it 's translucent so <laughs> and, it's, and so you get some play with this in the imagery too, where you can have it this a very the veil as kind of erotic mm-hmm. and um, and so having all of that together is yeah yeah that can be read nicely with origin on the song of songs, so this kind of the where you have the both and, this concealing as, concealing as provocation to, veiling as provocation to unveiling. Yeah.
1: Well, I think that is the, perfect note um, (laughs) to end our conversation because this uh, whole story is much more complicated now than it was uh, before we had lunch. Um, So thank you so much for this wonderful research and uh, for presenting it to us in such a fascinating way.
3: Thank
2: you.